Welcome to Outside Inside Radio, which is brought to you by Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. Our collaborative teaching teams include faculty, students, and staff, and our classes include making art, art history, reflection, and the cultivation of a safe space. We're based in the School of Art and Design at San Diego State University and have additional chapters at three CSU campuses, San Bernardino, Fresno, and Fullerton. Prison Arts Collective is a project of California Transformative Arts, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media as an extension of our distance learning project created in response to COVID-19. Welcome, everyone. This is Ella Turen, and we are here with Kathy Foley-Mayer, my wonderful co-host. Hey. And also, we have our special guest today, Marisa DeLuca. Welcome, Marisa. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here with us. Uh, Marisa is a very talented artist, and she's going to be sharing with us information about her work and about her journey. So Marisa, can you talk a little bit about how you became an artist? What brought you to art itself? And you're a visual artist. So tell us a little bit about the kind of work that you do. Sure. Well, I'm an oil painter and the work that I do is somewhat personal narrative and um, somewhat socially engaged as well. And um, I started out doing visual art at a really young age. And I think that most artists and most kids start out that way. You know, I've been painting and drawing since I can remember. I grew up going to public school before no child left behind. And so the arts were available for me growing up in school. I was able to take art all through middle school, all through high school. And I also had a lot of other kind of creative activities I was doing at the same time. I played guitar. I learned how to play piano. I was doing ballet as a preteen. So there was a lot of creativity in my childhood. Um, But kind of parallel to that path of creativity was... um, just a boatload of adverse childhood experiences. My parents had drug and alcohol problems. There was domestic violence in the home, you know, so it was really chaotic growing up. And my art was something that I could constantly return back to as kind of this refuge, you know, in this kind of safe space. So even though, you know, they had their personal problems and I'm a mother now, so I understand that as parents, we're not perfect and we're kind of playing with the hand that we're dealt, but, um, you know, they always tried to encourage that creativity in me and those creative activities. So I ended up getting involved in drugs and alcohol and, and um, you know, criminal behavior at a really young age, I think because of everything that I had going on at home. And I still had art going on at the same time, but it became kind of peripheral as my life got more chaotic as I struggled through school, art was always kind of this side, like hobby thing. And and at the same time, you kind of get these um, messages from society that art isn't a, a worthwhile career or that it's, you know, it's a waste of time to go to school for it. So I kind of really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. But I had an art teacher all four years of high school 
named Heidi Kendall, who was uh, a pretty accomplished watercolorist herself. And she was very professional, but she was always kind of this example of like, here's a professional artist who's also teaching, who's doing what she loves. And this idea of a life is possible. I got pregnant at 19 and I started working full-time in, in, in an office and that was just like soul crushing. And so, you know, I had the chaos of my substance abuse problem of being a new mom, a new single mom and work and art just kind of got pushed further and further. I would still create, but it was really just minimal. And that was the chaos for a long time. I, uh, I got in some pretty big trouble around age 29 or 30 and I went to county jail for a year I got out, got pregnant, got a violation, and went to prison pregnant. So I started out up at Chowchilla, and then I went to CIW. And I just thought, I'm screwed. They're going to take my baby, and you know my life is going to be over. I ended up getting into the, the mother-infant prison program in Pomona. And that it really was like my saving grace. I didn't have to be separated from my daughter. You know, they had all kinds of parenting classes and things for you to do in there. And I think that's one of those moments where there was this kind of fork in the road in my life. And if things hadn't have gone that way, if I would have gotten out losing my kid, I don't know what would have happened. My daughter was six months old and I paroled with this six month old baby on my hip and like a bag full of clothes. And like, that's it. That was it. <laughs> it's like, where, you know, where are you going to go? And um, so I did some kind of transitional housing for a little while. And the day that I got out, I ended up getting pregnant again. So that's a whole other story. <laughs> whole other story. But we'll just say I got pregnant again. Um, their dad is was kind of going through his own struggle at the same time. And, you know, I don't want to tell his story, but he was not around. And, I, you know, I had to do this on my own. All of a sudden, I went from having one kid. Now I have three kids. I'm out. I have nothing. Where am I going to go from here? So I applied for a lot of public programs. I got on HUD. I got on CalWORKs. I got into the um, the Welfare to Work program. And I thought as I went through this journey, I kind of thought, you know, if at the beginning when I got out of my parole agent would have said, what do you want to do? How can I help you get these resources? Where do you want to go in your life? I think it could eliminate a lot of the the recidivism that we see, you know, but I, I had this kind of new purpose when I got into welfare to work and they were like, you can go to school. And I kind of had this new purpose and it was like, Hey, you know, this is all of a sudden this went from like being nothing, you know, having nothing to like, I felt like I won the lottery. You can go to school, you can study art, you can make something of your life. And, um, you know, I ended up going to prison and everything. I was able to get off drugs and alcohol for the last time and, and move forward in that and get focused on, on, on my life as an artist, you know, so I started out as a student and I kind of, I, I started going to school saying, okay, I want to be an art professor. And um, I met my mentor, Bo Kim. He is a, uh, an art professor at Palomar College in San Marcos. And I told him, I said, I just, I want to be an art professor. Can you kind of like help me out here and show me the ropes? And he said, you can't learn how to be an art professor. You have to learn how to be an artist. And then, you know, it's artists that can teach. You can't go into it like, I'm going to be an educator. Artists teach. So I'm like, okay, all right. You know, and so it was kind of like this argument back and forth in my own heart of like being willing to admit to myself that I, that I can be like a capital A artist and, and that I can stand up to, you know, when, when you tell people that you're an artist, they kind of roll their eyes and go, well, yeah, but like, what do you do? Like, you know, what's your job, you know? Because <laughs> no one no one believes that that's an actual thing. <laughs> right. 
you know, it's, it's, so it's this very, like, um, it's a scary thing to, to claim that, you know, but I finally working with Bo and watching him and working with other professional artists, you know, as my professors, I saw that like, Hey, this is viable. And I think more importantly that, you know, at the end of my days, I don't have to leave this world and regret that I spent my whole life just working in an office. So I claimed that. I said, okay, I'm a capital A artist. I went to Palomar um, and I started out on on a body of work called uh, Questa Nani Una Mela. And um, that's, the, that's kind of like a personal narrative series. And that was kind of the place where I first started doing more bodies of work as opposed to the individual pieces. Because my portfolio had been so like disjointed prior to this. It was all over the place. It was just kind of whatever I thought was pretty or cool or like, hey, that looks good. Now it was like, hey, you know what? I have a message that I want to send. And I did really well at Palomar and I ended up transferring to UC San Diego as a studio art major. And um, that's really like what blew the lid off. It made me feel incredibly confident because now I'm with like some big time artists, artists that are showing in the hammer and they're showing, you know, there's just like real like big time. They show these like art 21 and it's like them in the video. It's like, oh my God, like this is my professor. You know what I mean? So it made these people real too, you know, cause you kind of see professional artists as almost celebrity status. And it's like, you know, they're telling their story about undergrad and about grad school and the shows that they did and their successes and failures. And, and it made me realize that like, this can be real for me. So um, I work a lot in my studio. I have a little studio here in my garage and, um, I just put in a lot of work. I think that's, that's kind of what changed it from hobby to like career is, is putting in the work and being consistent. So I try to be down there a lot. I was going to say, do you have a daily practice? I mean, when you think about being an artist as a full-time job, like how do you approach that? Well, my daily schedule, as far as being a, a practicing artist right now, is always broken up because I'm still in school. I'm about to graduate, so I have congratulations. to congratulations. Congratulations! Yeah, yeah I get. You know, to come from where I came from to be here now, it's just like, yeah, I, I, I'm still in imposter syndrome. I'm waiting for you to stand here to call say, "Oh, Miss Deluca, <laughs> no, you did it, you did yeah. it. That's awesome." Right. You know, so, so I'm, I'm there now, but, um, so I have classes that I have to balance with, um, you know, my responsibilities as a mother. And I'm so fortunate that the welfare to work program helped me get, um, solid daycare at like a really nice place. So they get to be at daycare all day, you know, at daycare and kinder and stuff, you know, but I have to manage when they come home too. And, um, and then also balance having time in the studio. And so the studio time is really like the priority. I have to cut these chunks into my day where I say I'm painting. I can't set appointments right now. I can't, you know, it, it takes it away from that hobby aspect where it becomes, um, you know, kind of like clocking in. Right. So, so I think having that attitude of, of that being the priority has really changed things for me. Now, when I'm on breaks from school, then it's like daily, <laughs> it's daily, you know? And then of course I have time where I'm sketching, I'm doing studies, I'm researching because I think that the, the research, while it doesn't always show up specifically in my work, I think it helps to guide my decisions as an artist once I get in front of the canvas. 
So I would love for you to talk a little bit about your body of work, because I love how you describe that too, that you've got themes, you've got, and even earlier, you said you have a message, you have something to say. So can you talk a little bit about the content, like what you've developed as your body of work, and even how that has evolved? Because I'm sure that is it changed from when you first started to what you're doing now. Oh, yeah, it, it has changed a lot. So I mean, I was really kind of and like an outsider artist, you know, for a, for a long time, really before I started going to school. And I, you know, I took art classes, but I was pretty messed up back then. I really wasn't paying attention, you know what I mean? And so the, the work that I would make was really kind of just, I was in my own little bubble, kind of self-taught sort of thing, um, really disjointed all over the place. Once I got into bodies of work, that the first one that I had mentioned, Cuesta um, Noni Unamela, how I came to the concept was a friend of mine, we were having some kind of, you know, relationship conversation or, you know, about our relationships or problems or whatever. And she had watched this documentary about Mormon teens who were saving themselves for marriage. And she described this scene in in the documentary where this teenage girl is talking about how it's like, your heart is this apple. And when you sleep around, you give everyone a bite of this apple. And then when you finally meet your future spouse, all you have left is this kind of chewed up apple core to offer them. And I mean, I don't really subscribe to that ideology, but I love that metaphor of like the heart is an apple and giving it away. And I thought about as a woman, all the all these times that I had let my boundaries down or allowed people to treat me in ways that inside I really wasn't comfortable with. And I was letting everybody have a bite of this apple, you know, and I started to think about Janis Joplin, take another piece of my heart and sexism being as American as apple pie, you know, and, and all these things, just kind of this app, the apple idea just exploded after that. So, you know, I started sketching, I started writing down ideas and I found myself in this metaphor of the apple. And so Questa Nani Unamela I'm, I'm Italian. And so um, it's an Italian title that means this is not an apple. And so it was kind of this, um, this Rene Magritte kind of reference. And, um, and, and within that kind of thinking about how through art history, the apple was kind of used as this metaphor for a woman's um, fertility or sexuality. And you see the, you know, the reclining nude with the thing apples or, you know, there's always kind of this connection of like a woman being fruitful and fruit of her womb. And there's Adam and Eve and apple mythology that kind of plays back and forth with women. So for me, it was kind of like taking the apple back. Like, hey, you guys have had enough time with this. Now for, for, for femininity, I'm going to take the apple back. So I started to represent the apple in the spectrum of um, health to decay. And um, my, my work is, is really in conversation with my photography. I'm not a photographer. I think I'm a terrible photographer, but I take all my own source photography and I use it in my paintings. And so for apples, what I started to do, my kids thought I was crazy, is I would take an apple, like a bite out of it. You know, four-year-old takes a bite. I don't want it anymore. So I take this bitten apple and I'd set it on the counter and let it rot for like months. And every week, every couple of weeks, take pictures of it. I, got, I have one going right now. I got another one down in the studio. But, you know, I take pictures of these rotting apples. I cut apples up in different ways and, and try to get... Um, you know, apples in these different states, and then kind of create a narrative about 
my own experiences, but I think also the broader female experience, this body of work is not where I want it to be yet. I was really chugging along with it and I had maybe about 10 pieces done so far in it. And then I got an opportunity to kind of move in another direction that I had been thinking about for a while. So so I definitely want to come back to Cuesta, but it's kind of on hold right now. I um, applied for a grant. It's a grant that they offer in any discipline, and you're kind of doing a, a research project that's that's being funded, and then at the end of the year, you have deliverables. And not a lot of visual arts majors get into this. It's usually the STEM and biotech, and you know people are making right. bionic uh, bird wings and stuff in this. So I presented this idea to them, um, which I had been thinking about for a couple of years and taking pictures for, that meditates on gentrification here in Oceanside, California. That's where I live. Mm -hmm. And um, I've lived here for a long time and I've noticed a lot of locals have noticed that the, the town is just getting completely homogenized. You know, all the old buildings are disappearing. All the old signage is disappearing. All the old faces are disappearing. You know, it's, it's the demographic is really changing and it's created quite a bit of wealth inequality a real lack of a safety net for lower income and immigrant communities here who have no recourse when when the property values go up and the rent goes up and you can't afford it and you got to move. And so people are being pushed to East County. And um, it really started to make me sad. And, and um, I had strong feelings about it that I don't think sad describes. I really didn't know how to put it into words. And I really didn't know how to... Um, to take the power back in that respect. The city government is very entangled in that drive for economic growth without consideration of who that growth benefits and who that growth hurts. And so uh, the only way that it felt like I could do something about it was, I was like, I'm gonna paint paintings about it and I'm just gonna try to explore it. I'd been taking pictures for a few years already of really kind of like everyday common type stuff, like the telephone wires with the shoe hanging down or the clothesline with the clothes on it or an old sign that, you know, I've driven past that sign for 20 years. And I just know that any day now it's going to be demolished and I'm never going to see that beautiful thing again. Mm -hmm. And um, as I started to think about kind of like the things that I wanted to paint in this um, series I realized that they weren't like inherently beautiful by like aesthetic standards, but there was something really beautiful about these things to me. And also kind of like the patina and the, the kind of story that it's like, as if, if these walls could talk, what would they say? You know, I kind of see that in like the rust and the cracks in the wall or whatever. And so I was like, well, I just like it. I'm just going to paint it. I'm just going to do it. And then I don't know what made me look at it. It was something completely un unrelated made me look at Kintsugi bowls broken Japanese pottery that's, um, they fix it with, with gold and then it becomes this like beautiful piece of art. Mm -hmm. And I started to think about how the damage and the struggles that these urban spaces, you know, collect over time, that story is really what makes them beautiful. And I could feel like, you know, I, it's kind of, so when I talk about it, it sounds like kind of a stretch, but I really feel that, that like, for me, you know, the, the scars that I bear on my outer scars and my inner scars, those are things that 
that make my character rich and, and make my story beautiful. And watching those things disappear and, and you know, I kind of felt this, this pre mourning or this kind of pre nostalgia for things that weren't quite lost yet, but I knew were going to go away. So it was this um, kind of preserving what's being lost. And there mm-hmm. are places where I've gone out and taken pictures and I thought, Oh, you know, this, this wall right here, this storefront, like I know they're about to demolish it. And then go back a couple days later and it's gone. And then I'd see places around Oceanside that I thought, oh, I should really come back and take a picture. And I didn't. And then they were gone. And I was like, oh, and it, it created this urgency too, that like, I got to get out there and I got to take these pictures and I got to make these paintings. And um, I started looking at Kintsugi bowls for something totally unrelated. And I got on this idea of wabi-sabi, which is um, kind of an old Japanese philosophy. I think it's been kind of... Uh, you know, capitalized on in other ways, but you know, I've done a little bit of reading on it and, um, and I was really interested in this idea of the beauty of impermanence and the beauty of time passing and the effect of the elements on, on things. And wabi-sabi is really talking more about nature, but for me as someone who's always grown up in an urban area my whole life, it's like concrete and walls and, and light posts and street signs that kind of, that becomes natural in a sense, you know? So it was, it's kind of this, like, um, you know, these urban, urban landscapes sometimes. And that thread that I think really connects all of my serious work, um, since I decided to call myself a capital A artist is, is time passing and, and the effect of time and space and elements on, on objects and on people. So that work is really chugging along. And I've been fortunate in this, um, my final year at UC San Diego, that all of my painting classes have been um, completely open. And they've all been like, okay, get your own concept, get your own body of work and work, and we'll just crit. So it's been nice to have that kind of almost graduate style format. It's given me a lot of freedom. And I think it's a body of work that's going to um, continue for a while. I've got a lot, a lot to sort out with it, you know, and figure out where, where I want to go next. Uh, I love what you're doing because it's so site specific, you know, geographically located where, where you have a personal connection, but at the same time, it's such a universal story of, what's going on in so many places in this country and to be able to document it in the way that you're talking about, I think will really, people will really connect to that. Totally. Yeah. I've watched other areas kind of fall into that gentrification black hole. And I think, you know, for a lot of people who, who grew up and live in a, you know, a coastal area, it's just, it's that same heartbreak that, I mean, it's hard to even put into words how you miss that stuff, you know? Yeah, it's like when you are in a cityscape and you see the ghost signs from, you know, the 40s and the 50s and, and you know, even earlier than that. Right. Um, I also think it's really interesting, too, your approach, because um, the Japanese have a different way of dealing with temporality. And I, um, and I, you kind of have a similar thing in terms of... Um, memory and holding space for memory. So I was curious, are there artists that have influenced your process? Well, as far as, 
As far as that goes, the wabi-sabi part of it, no. And that that's what was so such a revelation to me was once I like heard about wabi-sabi and I started reading about it, I was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly how I feel. You know, it's like I found it. You know? So so in that respect, no. But there are some artists who um, I look to kind of in a in the same ideological vein, um, especially the artists from the Ashcan school in the um, the 19th century social or uh, American social realist movement, um, especially John Sloan, um, George Lukes also, you know, they have these kind of gritty cityscapes and, and, you know, the Ashcan artists work, I'm not like super fired up about. Like when I look at those paintings, I'm kind of like, you know, they're like not super pretty, you know, but what I love about it and what I think I'm trying to do in the same way is, I'm trying to capture life as it really is for a particular demographic in a particular area. And, um, you know, I don't know if the, the kind of consciousness raising I'm trying to do is, is similar to what they were trying to do in Ashcan school. I mean, they were trying to bring progressive change, which I think I, 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 well, I know that I want to, um, but, I don't know if I, if I'm able to affect that yet. So those um, artists definitely going even further back, um, Gustave Courbet and uh, um, the French realists, um, you know, yeah. that's kind of like the granddaddies of, of that movement. And so I definitely look to them more contemporary artists who, um, who really interest me um, from like a compositional standpoint would be Cohen Vandenbroek. Um, I think he's Dutch and he does a lot of these, um, these urban scenes where it's like, um, you know, the curb and the, the, the streetlight post and the shadow of the streetlight post. And, it, and they're real minimal, um, yet so effective. And his, his work is in conversation with photography too. Like that's really what he's trying to talk about is photography and I'm, I'm obsessed with shadows. Like, I kind of think that's my dirty little secret of all my paintings is like, yeah, there's all this other stuff going on, but really I just want an opportunity to paint a shadow. <laughs> <laughs> which are, which are not easy to do by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're challenging and they're beautiful and, and he's really good at it. So Cohen Vandenbroek, um, also Richard Diebenkorn, um, he does some urban landscapes that are a little more abstract at times, but I like that. It's like, he's willing to push it to that next level where he's getting really creative with kind of like, you know, it, at sometimes it looks like a map and sometimes it looks like then the building's right in front of you and you're kind of disoriented. Um, also, um, a- I, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but Ava Strubble. Um, I think she teaches at um, San Diego state. She does some urban landscape too. That is um, really colorful and, and fun and like dark at the same time. And um Oh, of course, too. Um, Edward Hopper. Sorry, that's kind of going backwards in time. He's kind of in between. He's not quite Ashcan, but um, Edward Hopper does those city city scenes too, where it's really this like, this is where you're at. These are the people, and it's it's specific to a place. But like you said, it has this kind of universal message that like you know that that little restaurant with the lights on inside, or that little porch with the lights on, and the the couple sitting there. I mean, that could be anywhere in in America, and we can all relate to that story. So. Um, I think, are you a fan of film noir by any chance? Film noir. I, I'm not 
a film buff. I'll just say yeah. that. I'm not. A film buff. I'm, I'm sure. Just, you mentioned buff. shadows. You mentioned similar aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. It's a, all about the shadows. Wow. I'm not a film buff, but I do love shadows. So, um, what? So, just to bring us to a, a close, like, what has doing this artwork and really like leaning into it for you, like what has it taught you about yourself? What are the lessons that you feel like you've come out of it with? Well, I think um, what my practice has taught me about myself um, is a level of self-worth. I think that I didn't have before, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I know I have a long way to go. I have a lot to learn. I want to stay open and teachable. But over the past um, couple years, I think I've really proven to myself that I have a, a level of skill, um, a level of uh, connection to my intuition, and um, a perseverance that I, I didn't previously know that I had. Mm. And I find that kind of in the, you know, in the broader view of, of my life story, but also I think where it really is impactful to me is in these micro moments of when I'm kind of wrestling with a painting and I'm getting to a point where like, I'm ready to just chuck this thing out the garage door. I'm so mad at it. And I push through and I find a way to make it work. And, and those micro mo- moments of problem solving it, it, they kind of compound and, um, and fill me up, you know, being a, a, a drug addicted, formerly incarcerated, single mom, low income, you know, this laundry list of like, why I don't matter. And to be able to learn for myself that um, I do matter, that I do have value. Um, and that And that that value doesn't have to come from outside sources. You know, that value can come from inside and, and it's, um, it's validating enough, you know? So I don't know. I've, I've learned so many things from this practice, but I think like if, if, if I could say like, what's the one like huge gift I've gotten by being able to do this, that would be it. That's beautiful. Yeah, it is. Well, how can people um, connect with you, find out, uh, you know, where you're going to be showing next, where your art is? How can they find out what you're doing? Thanks for asking. I have a website. It's marisadelucastudio.com. There's no WW in front of it. (laughs) Okay. I also have an Instagram, which is kind of like the B-sides of my website. And that's the the handle is marisadelucastudio.com. I have a show coming up. I think it's going to be online at the UC San Diego Adam Camille Gallery online. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm showing a piece um, at the Art on 30th um, hashtag obsessed show. I have one piece in there. So we've got a few things coming up. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Marisa, for taking the time to chat with us. Um, It's been such a pleasure to hear about your journey and to hear about the amazing work, which is um, so unique and um, completely 
fascinating and inspiring too. Thank you. You are so kind. Thank you so much, ladies, for shining your light on my story and, and on stories like mine. I appreciate you. Appreciate you too. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Thank you for joining us here at Outside Inside Radio. We really appreciate your support. And you can find out more about us at www.prisonartscollective.com. I'm your host, Ella Turen. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Outside Inside Radio. Until the next time.